Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Oliver here. Hello from Amsterdam. I have an incredible interview this week with Frank Arig, the CEO of Revel. Uh, it's an e-moped sharing company based in New York and DC. It's awesome. They've just announced a massive raise, literally like a couple of hours before this interview went out. So it's incredibly exciting time to be discussing with them and to just learn about what they're doing. A um, lot of really deep insights into vehicle longevity and operations and how that impacts unit economics. I think you'll learn a lot, especially in comparison to some of the other companies that we've seen in this space. But before we get into that, I want to thank this week's sponsor, Particle. So all the scooters and bikes and other vehicles that we deal with in this micromobility world typically are connected to the internet. When that isn't configured correctly and operators lose contact with their fleet, it can get expensive very quickly. If you don't know where your $700 scooter is, you're in deep doo-doo. As I've learned more about this industry, I've come to appreciate just how much complexity there is to make that work well. And that's where Particle comes in. It provides an end-to-end IoT platform for device management, connectivity, and hardware, and connects all that up to make these scooters and bikes just work. For operators, tracking a fleet's health and addressing on-demand regulations in a city is complicated, but then it gets, you know, continual compliance in this space gets substantially worse at scale. Particle's IoT platform enables customization, fleet management tools, and reliable connectivity to support operators' growth and differentiation in the market. From the operators that I've talked to, Particle has been a godsend, helping streamline the hard bits and let them actually focus on running their businesses. So if this is your sort of thing, visit particle.io forward slash micromobility to learn more and request a free IoT development kit. All podcast listeners will also receive a free consultation. So check out particle.io forward slash micromobility today. Thanks so much to Particle. And with that, here's our awesome interview with Frank. And welcome back to Micromobility. Today we have with us Frank Rieg from Revel, CEO of this amazing e-moped company in New York. How are you going today, Frank? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Oliver. No stress. I'm incredibly excited because literally about, uh, what, an hour ago or something, you guys broke the news that you've just raised a bunch of money. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's super exciting. We completed our Series A of $27.6 million. IBEX Ventures led that round. Everyone that was a part of our seed round from a VC side used their pro router to be a part of the Series A as well, which is always great to see doubling down on us. Toyota AI also joined the round as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Toyota AI, like that's they just recently put a, another round, some into Skip as well, as far as I've seen. So they're definitely getting very active in the micromobility space. Um, it's really exciting to see that they've gone and back to you guys. I would love for you to take us through what Revel is like the I've been hearing about this for sort of a couple of months and um, this oh yeah there's this company in New York they're doing emo pads they should really go check them out obviously I've had a chance to go and research but I think your story is so interesting I'd love to just let you tell it I mean talk to us what is it and how did you come to be doing this 
Yeah, I mean, Revel, in case anybody uh, hasn't seen, we're a shared electric moped operator. So the way the user uses the system is very similar to any of these other micromobility operators. You know, there's an app, you see the vehicles on, on the map, you're able to start to ride right through the app. There's no key required. But I think the biggest thing here when it comes to Revel is just the fact that this isn't a bike or a scooter. It's a motor vehicle, right? So it has a license plate. It stays completely off sidewalks, rides and parks in the street. Because it has a license plate and has full third-party liability insurance, to get that license plate, you have to register it with any state DMV here in the United States. And we also provide two helmets in every single ride. So when you think about just the type of vehicle that this is, we almost sort of group ourselves more with car share sometimes than scooter or bike share. Yeah, I could totally see that. Absolutely. And how did you come to be doing this? Because, I mean, there isn't, as far as I understand, before this, there was really only one operator, and we'll get into that in a little while. But, um, yeah, how did you come to be doing Revel? So Revel started as an idea maybe about 20 months ago, January 2018, and it really was just from traveling overseas. The particular light bulb moment was when I was in Argentina, Buenos Aires, in, in January 2018. And just, you know, it's the summer down there in January, and everyone is on some sort of Vespa, some sort of moped, literally like no one's in a car. And I just kept thinking, if anyone's ever been to Buenos Aires, like it kind of feels like Brooklyn, it has that same feel, kind of artsy, just basically everyone speaks Spanish. It's really the only difference. And this light bulb went off of why is this not happening in a city like New York? Why is this not happening in other cities in the U.S.? You know, cars are tough to get around. They just cause more congestion. You can't park them. You're constantly in gridlock. But when you're in a moped, you just feel so much more free and able to just maneuver throughout the city and actually park the thing. <laughs> so that's really where it started, just traveling overseas and then coming back. And that was about 20 months ago. And then really, it has been a race since then. Yeah, completely. And like, talk me through what was your background before this that allowed you to walk out of, you know, having an overseas experience like that and then being able to build an interesting business out of this? I mean, previous to that, I was working at a company called Gerson Lerman Group, GLG. I was part of their investment research division, specifically when it comes to energy and industrials. That's actually where I met my co-founder, Paul Suey, as well. And that job was essentially hosting conference events for hedge fund and private equity analysts when it comes to energy and industrials. So we would basically be hosting an, uh, you know, a former executive of Tesla or a former executive of a large U.S. utility and drive a conversation around that industry. So our heads were already in the space of electric vehicles, lithium-ion batteries, the future of mobility, because we were hosting events on these sorts of topics as part of our full-time job. And I think when you just combine that with I'm the type of person where when I was a kid and you would ask me growing up what I wanted to be, I wouldn't say doctor, I wouldn't say police officer or some of these other maybe things that kids say, I would say I want to own my own business, right? So I think I'm just the type of person where I always had that mentality. It was, I always wanted to do my own thing. It was just a matter of what is that thing and when is that going to become reality? Yeah, awesome. So talk me through. So for you guys, as you said, you know, people can come along, they can operate the vehicles, they open them on an app. How many vehicles are we talking? I mean, where are you guys operating? So right now we're in Brooklyn and Queens with a fleet of a thousand vehicles covering about 25 square miles. So just to, for those that don't know Brooklyn Queens geography, it's only about one fifth of Brooklyn and Queens. So it gives you an idea of how much more there is to cover here just in these two boroughs. In DC, we have a fleet of 400 vehicles. That's what our permit is for. And we're covering about 70, 75 square miles throughout the District of Columbia. Yeah, awesome. So 70, 75 square miles on a, so that's actually a, like a lower density than you have in New York. How's that working? It is the agreement with DDOT, uh, the DOT of, of DC, is that, listen, let's start with a permit of 400 vehicles. It's only for four months. We're going to call it a pilot. 
And then let's talk about it, you know, in November, December, see how this is going, and then we'll increase that permit accordingly. So I think from the way things are going, the ridership we're seeing, success we're having in DC, I think we'll be able to get that permit up, something that's more reasonable for a square mileage that we're covering. Yeah, totally. Because one of the things that we can see, at least talking to shared micromobility operators, is the need for that density inside of the geofences in which they operate. Because, you know, at the end of the day, right, a customer is really only going to be able to, they want to be able to rely on your service and be able to know that they can get a vehicle. Can you share any metrics at all about how things are going in New York or is that all proprietary? (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be tough to talk about. I will say if anyone has been in Brooklyn or Queens this past summer or September, you'll know ridership is very high. Yeah, literally, you almost can't find a Rebel because they're always rented. So it's been pretty cool to see. I think anyone that's traveled to these two boroughs in the last three months can agree that Rebel is just part of New York City transportation now. Yeah, it's crazy how quickly that happens, right? I was just, we were just in Berlin for the micromobility conference. It's crazy how quickly things have shifted in Berlin simply with the introduction of the scooters and how, you know, it wasn't a thing and then like that, all of a sudden it turns over and immediately it is. And how quickly user behavior changes because it's like, well, it's now a thing. I can use it and I can rely on it. Really curious for you guys. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, you're a very different kind of vehicle. You know, these are operated on the road. They're operated with helmets. People have to have driver's license to be able to use them. How are you thinking about parking infrastructure and how does that work? So, you know, parking is sort of the special sauce to everything when it comes to our system. When you look at a permit that we have with DC, we have the ability to park a Rebel, if you're a user, at any meter in DC and any residential permit parking spot in DC for free, right? So that permit is key in order for this whole system to run. If you can't leave the Rebel at a meter, you can't leave a Rebel at a residential permit parking area, it doesn't work. So I think that's key to the whole thing. I think in general, though, just taking a step back, I think it's important just to recognize the uniqueness of this vehicle and that You know, every city, especially in the U.S., is so built for cars, car parking, car driving. It is a car city. doesn't matter if it's L.A., New York, Miami, you know, Oakland. It's all the same. So we have a vehicle that is lightweight, two wheels, fully electric, but lives in a car world. So we're able to take advantage of car parking. That's already in all these cities. We're able to take advantage of where cars ride, which is the entire city as opposed to fighting over this 10% of space left over for everybody else on the sidewalk and limited bike lanes. So I think it's just a really unique vehicle. And I think that's why it's so popular around the world in any country you go to, because so many countries are built for cars and this is a two wheel vehicle that can actually live with cars. And I think that's why we're having so much success now in New York and now DC and I'm looking forward to other cities. Yeah, absolutely. So I read in the press release regarding your race that you're looking to roll out to another 10 cities. Is that correct? That's pretty much the plan. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think a big piece of this as well is just expanding the cities we already have. You know, like I mentioned, New York, I think there's a lot of more ground to cover here. D.C., there's a lot more vehicles to deploy there as long as we work with the DOT there and get that permit up. So it's a combination of expanding the cities once we're there and then also expanding to new territory. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I note is interesting about this, you know, compared to how do you think about yourself in comparison to, for example, the, I mean, as you mentioned, you kind of think about yourself as more like a car share than like a scooter share. But what are the things that you would say in comparison to scooter shares that make you an interesting business? You know, if you can talk to, for example, vehicle longevity or recharging or range or other things. Absolutely. I think a big one is vehicle longevity. Right. We have a vehicle that we intend to have last at least two to three years. 
And we're seeing that now four or five months into operations here in New York with an expanded fleet of a thousand that that's realistic. We're just now going into like our first, you know, five month deeper maintenance, checking the brake pads, just doing a full safety check on the vehicle. And we're going to be doing that every four to six months for the next two to three years. So when you take the amount of revenue that these vehicles are producing, which is a lot more than a scooter, mostly because the trips are longer, which just generates more revenue per ride, the economics really start to look favorable for a vehicle like this. And just, uh, again, that longevity of the vehicle really helps make the economics work. Completely. And then how does it work for charging? So with charging, it's a lot, I would maybe even say simpler than with scooters. So we never need to take the vehicles off the road. The vehicles stay on the road 24-7. The only thing that we're doing is we are basically have large commercial vans that we've engineered to hold a whole bunch of lithium-ion batteries that go around our area, usually over the overnight shift when traffic is less, and just swap out the batteries. If I were to show you a rev like it, it takes about 30 seconds. Just take the batteries right on out. And then related back to the scooter question as well, that's actually a good point now that I'm thinking about is, you know, our batteries get 50 to 60 miles of range and the next generation batteries that we're talking to our supplier about are going to get 60 plus. So when you talk about the unit economics of how often you need to send an employee to that vehicle to swap out that battery, as compared to how much revenue you're getting in between swaps, much more compared to a scooter that maybe gets 10, 15 miles. And again, that helps that unit economics equation a lot. Another big piece of this, again, is I think a difference between our company and was mentioned in the TechCrunch article this morning, we don't use any gig economy. So every employee here in New York, every employee here in DC, any other city that we go to, from customer support agents to battery swappers to mechanics, they all have the same benefits in health insurance I have. And I think that just builds a culture around really caring deeply about these vehicles and caring deeply about the company. That's very different from the gig economy model. Yeah, absolutely. Talking to a lot of the European operators, that's another thing. Obviously, Europe, a little bit less label flexibility in the market, and they've all gone for a professionalized fleet as like teams who, who go out and service the fleets. And that's certainly a point of differentiation that they like to stress as well in comparison to the North American model. That said, though, I mean, I'm really curious. You guys, okay, you're at one city, 30 mil maybe gets you to another, say, 10 cities or something like this. How capital efficient can your growth be? Because I'm really curious, as you mentioned, you know, like, you're more like a car share than a scooter share. And a lot of the money that the early scooter operators have raised has gone directly into purchasing those scooters in a blitzscaling sort of like, hey, we're all going to go purchase. We're going to use the money that we've got as investment and go and purchase these. Are there fleet operators out there who are willing to effectively buy you the fleet and help you lease it back to you so that you don't actually have to carry that on your balance sheet? I mean, you could have explained it any better. So even as a seed stage company, before we raised this Series A, before I had a thousand mopeds on the streets of New York City, we were able to lock in financing for all of our vehicles. Right. Which is a huge piece of this, right? That's how I was able to take a small seed round and be able to expand to 1,000 mopeds in a major U.S. city, already expand to another U.S. major city, and we're already talking to other cities to expand there before I even close the Series A. And a big piece of that is that being so capital efficient, not owning these vehicles. But I was able to find partners to finance these vehicles on my behalf because they believe in the asset life of a three-year vehicle. Right. Right. So it's just much easier for to get them on board. And now that we've raised a Series A and have shown the success that we have and the demand in DC and New York for this type of vehicle, 
it's really easy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some ways, that's wonderful. It also worries me a little bit for you guys strategically in the long term, because one of the things that I've been reflecting on as I've been in Europe has been the car share model. You know, it started out with Zipcar. That was the first one who proved out the model and it showed, hey, you, you can share these vehicles on a sort of like an hourly basis. But it got what you're starting to see now is the OEMs come in and effectively just dump cars in the markets. And it's crazy. We took a Volkswagen Golf from one end of Berlin to another and it cost us seven euros, which was cheaper than it would be to rent a scooter for that distance. And I just look at the OEMs going like, they're doing this as like a marketing exercise. I'm curious from you guys strategically, do you think about operators in the e-moped space who are going to want to come and do a similar sort of strategy? And how would you think about defending yourself against that at this stage? Well, in this market, there is no just dumping vehicles anywhere, right? Because you need a parking permit. You need permission from the city to be able to park at meters, whether it's Miami, whether it's LA, whether it's San Francisco, whether it's Seattle, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. You're not launching unless you have the permission from that department of transportation to park a moped at a meter in residential permit spots or else it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so I'm a little less afraid of that. I think actually our strategy from day one has just been working hand in hand with regulators. So here in New York City, there are no kick scooter companies. There are no dockless electric bike companies, but there is Rebel. And I think a big piece of why we're able to launch here is just from day one, communicating to the city, communicating to the city council members, communicating to the police precincts that we operate in, exactly what we're doing, getting their buy-in. Here in New York City, we have a proclamation from the city council welcoming us here to the city. In D.C., that was a conversation with them around an electric moped permit. Yep. Again, working total in lockstep with them. I think this brings up a bigger point, too, that a lot of people don't talk about. It's very easy for a CEO of a company like me to be on a podcast like this and say, we're committed to working with cities. Yeah. Well, I was going to push you on it. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody says that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's much more than that because there's commitment to working with cities to get a permit. And then what are you doing after you get that permit? So, I mean, in D.C., I was there two weeks ago with our community manager of D.C., going to community board meetings and answering questions and taking heat from that community and hearing what maybe we're doing wrong and also what we're doing right. Here in New York, our general manager and our community manager here, now that we've been launched three months, we're going back to every single community board meeting. We're going back to every single police precinct and having a conversation. And again, just hearing what are we doing right? What do we need to change? Because if we don't have the support from the community, we're not going anywhere. So it's much more than just getting a permit. It's then, okay, after you get the permit, how are you operating and how are you showing you're putting your best foot forward to continue operating here? And I think that's something Rebel just understands right from the start. And we're executing on that pretty darn well, in, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I was going to say, how do you start from that place? I mean, that you build that into your culture, because in some ways, right, like the way that I can see it is anybody who goes and get venture capital funding. There's a, like, a, I can see at least, especially with some of these earlier stage, the Chinese bike share bubble, and even a little bit with the way that some of the scooter stuff has rolled out, there's like a misalignment between cities and investors. And effectively them like overshooting and saying, hey, look, look at how crazy these unit economics are. Look at how quickly we can grow. And then the city's going like, whoa, you know, back the truck up, brother. You know, like you can't expand just willy nilly. How have you been able to do that right from the get go? Honestly, a big piece of this that, again, goes missing here in the U.S., is the fact that we have full-time labor. I can't stress enough that when we go to a DOT, I'm meeting with that director in any city in the U.S. I've met a bunch recently as we talk to different cities. The fact that we're able to go to them and say, listen, if we come here with a fleet of 1,000 vehicles, we're going to commit to full-time labor of 40 to 50 employees. 
Oh, and also we're going to work with your team to make sure the warehouse is in the lower income area of the city and hire locally from that community. That's something investors don't understand. You know, when they're not in those conversations with different DOTs around the city, they're not in those conversations with council members that, you know, me or my team is talking to in any city that we're about to launch in. That matters a lot. You know, if you're coming to them and saying, you're not hiring anybody, you're going to use a gig economy, you're going to fall on deaf ears. I can't stress that enough. It's a small thing here, maybe to some people, but it's actually a very big thing when you start going to the community level and talking to politicians that matter and have influence in cities and talking to, you know, obviously leadership at the DOT level. Yeah, absolutely. I want to change tack a little bit. So there's two things I want to cover. One is how you've seen the vehicles being used and, and any sort of insights that you have there around its integration to the rest of the transport system. And then the second is just what you've learned from others in this space as well. So if we start off with that, what how are you seeing the vehicles being used? What are they... New York is obviously, it has probably the highest proportion out of anybody in the US, any city in the US in terms of like not owning a car because the public transport system is quite good. How does it kind of figure into that mesh? I mean, take Brooklyn and Queens, for example. There's 6 million people that live in Brooklyn and Queens. That is a massive city outside of even Manhattan. And if you look at the transit network here, every subway is built to do the same thing. It's to get you to Manhattan, right? But of those 6 million people, from the data I've seen, more than 50% of people live in Brooklyn and Queens live and work in Brooklyn and Queens. So if you need to get around these two boroughs, there's really no way to do it unless maybe you wait 15, 20 minutes for a bus or you're going to take an expensive UberX or Lyft and now it's rush hour and you can get surge pricing and it's $28 to go somewhere. So I think we've tapped into just a, such a necessary need here in a city like New York just to be able to go from neighborhood to neighborhood where transit lines aren't going, subway lines. And we're seeing the same thing in DC. You know, our average trip distance in DC is pushing 3.5 miles. That is not a 0.9 mile inconvenient walk. This is a true neighborhood to neighborhood trip that that person can't make unless they're getting into an Uber, they're getting into a personal car, or they're gonna take two or three bus lines. So I think the need is clear in these US cities where public transit is just not where it needs to be. And even in cities where you can argue it is strong, like in New York City, there's still lots of needs where you know public transit isn't going. Yeah, absolutely. And talk me through your pricing as well, because that was one thing that I noted was quite interesting. You're at what, a dollar to unlock in 25 cents a minute? Yep, we keep it super simple. The one thing we also have is an access program. So anyone in any form of public assistance at the state or federal level also gets 40% off every ride. So now you're talking about maybe a ride that would normally cost five bucks is now costing three. So basically on par with the subway. Right. But yeah, we try and just keep things super simple, one-tier pricing, that's it. Yeah, I mean, the crazy thing that I look at is that that pricing at 25 cents a minute is cheaper than some of the operations of, if I'm correct, Bird and Lime in some of the markets in the US. I think they went to like a dollar and 30 cents a minute, right? I was in LA for a wedding two weeks ago in Santa Monica, and I was surprised. I was using, obviously, all the, all the apps. Bird was 39 cents a minute. I was like, wow, okay. Um, so I think they're definitely increasing those prices. The thing that is really interesting to me is the fact that you guys are able to, with a quote unquote better vehicle, I mean, different vehicle, but better vehicle in the sense of capability wise. It's it's better. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just capability wise, you know, Yeah. that it's actually able to deliver a lower cost per mile trip and that you guys are, are you able to reveal anything about, you know, are you contribution positive? Again, I'll just point to the fact that we took a small seed round, launched a thousand vehicles and maybe the most complicated city in the U.S., then launched another city in D.C. with a significant fleet. 
and still hadn't raised additional capital. And there should be further announcements in the next couple of months here before we even raise the Series A. You're very coy there, Frank. You're very coy. I'd like I'd <laughs> like more information, but that's fine. I guess I won't get it at this stage. That's cool. Hey, well, look, one thing that I'm really curious about, and kind of I mentioned it earlier in the episode, but like Scoot, as far as I tell, you know, I remember coming across Scoot back in the maybe 2014, I think they launched and going, wow, electric mopeds, man, that's the thing. Because it's a bigger form factor. It's going to be able to have better range. In theory, people should feel a little bit safer riding on. Curious from you what lessons you took from them. Obviously, they didn't have a great outcome. They bought up by Bird, but like at a round that wasn't that didn't reward the investors and the employees. Did you look at them? Did you try and replicate them? Did you talk to them at all? What lessons were there? So just to start off, I couldn't have enough respect for Scoot. They literally invented this market for everybody. They were the first in shared electric mobility. What did they launch? 2012, 2013? Yeah. I think the problem with Scoot is, and this is just my humble opinion, they were seven years too early Right. in a lot of different ways. The hardware, I think, wasn't there. I think if I had started an electric moped company in 2012, 2013, I wouldn't be expanding to new cities after three months. I would have struggled like they did because the hardware isn't there, the software isn't there. The battery range when they first launched, I believe, was max five, eight miles. I mean, that's two trips. How do you make money off that? So... I think from a hardware software perspective, the market wasn't ready. And then a consumer awareness perspective, you know, I launched a thousand vehicles in New York and I have tens of thousands of people signing up per month, right? Without a dollar of advertising or marketing. And I'm charging a $19 sign up fee. Right. Okay. That's incredible, right? Yeah. Because the consumer awareness is there. Scoot, Bird, Lime, Cardigo, all these different companies have done a lot of the education for me. And then I think something that isn't talked about that might even be the most important is regulatory awareness. I'm going into city meetings now with city halls and DOTs, and I'm talking about launching a thousand electric mopeds, and they're excited. Yeah, totally. Two years ago, forget about excited. I don't even think they would have taken the meeting. So I think there's just a regulatory awareness right now, and we are sort of, I can't be more excited about where Rebel is going to be going. I hear that, man. The regulatory question and the regulatory enthusiasm, I think, is there, especially because you're coming in. One, there's a bunch of stuff around that they have around congestion, which I think has really reared its head in the last seven or eight years, where they started to like, hey, we need other solutions. Obviously, Uber and Lyft have come along. Smartphones are far more penetrated. You know, it's just, yeah. I think something else that we haven't uh, talked about that has been really interesting for us has been over 20% of our rides have been two plus riders in both DC and New York. How do you tell that, if I can ask? We charge an extra dollar unlock fee for two riders. <laughs> okay. Though, how can you tell if someone hops on? I mean, I'm a heavy dude, and if someone hopped on along with me, it's like, you can definitely tell if you've got sensors in the vehicle, <laughs> but you definitely couldn't tell if like my mum hopped on with my brother, who both like people, you know, they'd probably weigh combined the same amount as me. Yeah, you know, right now we have a line in the app where it definitely lets you know your insurance will change if you're lying to us and you're riding two people and you haven't told us. And I think most people just get that. Like it's worth the extra dollar not to mess around with insurance. Again, because it's a motor vehicle and all we're doing is charging an extra buck to give you that insurance for the second person. But I mean, just the fact that I think the last time we checked it was 22% were two riders. And again, when you think about how do you replace Uber trips? How do you replace Lyft trips? How do you just replace car trips? Having a two-wheeled electric vehicle that can hold two people you know, is part of that equation. You need it. Or else they're going to walk out of a restaurant, a couple, two friends, and guess what? They're going to take an Uber, not a Revel, if they can't carry two people. Yep. 
I am really curious about that as well, because from your guys' perspective, obviously launching now with mopeds, but the, as you mentioned, you're kind of more like a car share. One of the really interesting developments I heard about when I was in Berlin was, I believe it was Get Around purchased Drivey, who's the French, one of the French operators, and they're now doing a trial in Rotterdam with these Bido, which is like a little tiny four-wheeler, but two-seat electric vehicle that weighs about 500 kilos. I mean, it's like a thousand pounds. It's hardly anything, but it's electric and it only goes, its range is about 40 or 50 miles, but they use it inside of cities for these short trips. Curious from your perspective, obviously you're pretty wedded to the e-moped, at least for the next little while, but could you see yourselves going into these other kind of slightly larger form factors, but same sort of, same sort of concept and idea? So my team is definitely looking at all sorts of, you know, form factors and vehicles, I think something that's always in the back of my mind, though, is just watch anyone riding a Rebel or riding a Vespa or any sort of moped. They're usually smiling. They're excited. It gives you, you know, the wind is in your face. It's an awesome way to get yourself around a city. Then imagine yourself in that little vehicle you just described. You're kind of like in close quarters. Is that as good of an experience? Are people going to enjoy that? Does it have any coolness factor? So I think in the background of all this is also just like user experience. And I think what we're seeing in New York and DC is that people realize right off the bat, a moped is just a sexy way to get around. It's fun. It's sexy. It's a lot, you know, it's just awesome. Whereas now you're going into this small cramped little two seat vehicle. Does that have any of that? I'm not sure. I'm I'm not saying it's not going to work. I'm just saying it's something I think about. Yep, absolutely. I'm really curious from your perspective, how do you think about safety? Because obviously, I mean, look, in New Zealand, we have a a socialized insurance company that takes care of anybody who's had any accidents on the road. And for mopeds in particular, your insurance premiums that you do pay into for that are some of the highest. Like if you're renting a moped, you're paying a lot of money every six months to the government in order to be able to be covered if you get injured on these things. How do you think about it from a risk perspective? What's your you know insurance cover and all that sort of stuff like? So, I mean, our insurance here in New York, you know, has been approved by the New York State Insurance Board, for instance. So we're meeting every single regulation possible. At the end of the day, it is third-party liability insurance. So if anything happens and there's an accident, person is injured, a a car is hit, something like that, that insurance is covering that damage. On the other side of the equation, you know, when it comes to our insurance, we provide our two users. We would never charge that user more than $500. So we're basically giving them, you know, a damage waiver, just being part of the service. But, you know, like any sort of Avis, Zipcar, Enterprise, you're renting a car, you know, none of these form factors come with health insurance. It's just like a very different form of insurance. With that being said, too, our vehicles top out at 29, 30 miles an hour. Yep. Right. Most, you know, even the smallest 50cc Vespa goes 50 miles an hour, if not more. So it's just a very different risk factor when you're talking about most of the time you're traveling between 10 and 25 miles an hour, as opposed to, you know, 40 to 55. Totally. And then from the safety, can you share any sort of stats or data on safety? I mean, have you had accidents with people who are, I mean, can you tell how many rides you've done and then what your accident rate is? I mean, just to give you an example, we've had hundreds of thousands of rides per month now that we're in New York and D.C. We've definitely had a few accidents. I mean, there's no question, you know, we're approaching a million rides. Like, of course, there's going to be a few accidents. At the end of the day, when we look at, you know, claims and accidents compared to the amount of rides, 
it's above 99.99% of rides go issue free. And I think we can always just be improving on that. But right now, I think it's working. 99.99. So that's what, one in every 10,000 rides? Uh, it's more than that, but yeah. 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 And then in terms of you guys, obviously, look, you're getting to 1,000 scooters. That's pretty quick. That's done. You went from a kind of the small pilot of what, 68 scooters to 1,000 pretty quickly. You've rolled out another 400. You're looking at another 10 cities. Scaling, man, like that's a challenging thing from an operational perspective. What are the biggest challenges you guys have faced together? I think... Going back to the New York launch, you know, you're so right. Going from 68 mopeds to 1,000 mopeds, it's not easy. Putting 1,000 vehicles on the road, getting everything ready to go, unboxing everything, having the team to do that, having the space, just coordinating everything. I think after the 1,000 moped launch here in New York, my team was great. We kind of looked at each other and said, wow, that was a lot. (laughs) Yeah. But you learn and you develop processes. And then when we launched DC, we did DC in like 36 hours. Wow. Because we took everything we did wrong in New York from a launch perspective, hired the right team to fix the things we needed. And then we launched DC 400 mopeds like basically in a day. And I think right now my team, after seeing how we executed on DC and so quickly and everything we learned from the New York launch, I think everyone is super excited for additional launches. It's sort of like we worked out the kinks, we realized what we need to do right from a process perspective just understanding how to do this the right way. Even a simple question of, you know, imagine you have a thousand vehicles. How do you transport a thousand mopeds onto the streets of whatever city you're in? Yes. Yeah. Right. So questions like that, that maybe we got wrong, uh, you know, the first day in the New York City launch, and then we learned and improved and figured out new ways to do things. And now, I mean, I don't think the team is worried about scaling. It's exciting. I think we're ready to go. Totally. And for you, I mean, what do you see the future looking like from, you know, say, for example, we come back to this, not in a year, because we know kind of where you'll be in a year. I'm curious about like two, three, four, five years from now, where would you like to see Rebel? The world's largest electric vehicle operator. You know, everyone is talking about being the aggregator, being the Amazon of transportation. That's fine. I'm going to be the Amazon of operations for electric vehicles in every city we're in. I like this bullishness, man. You Americans, you go at it like other, no others. That's awesome. Look, I really appreciate your time. And from my perspective, you know, as we think about micromobility, I think what we've done is we've really hung ourselves up on scooters and that particular form factor. And I just love to see the viability. This is the Cambrian explosion playing out in this. And I actually, I'm so excited to hear, I know you can't share a huge amount, but we're starting to see what viable economics of these shared systems are actually going to start looking like and what this will enable for cities in terms of being able to have people get around at low cost and i could not be more excited for you guys i think it's really awesome and i really appreciate your time coming on and sharing with us yeah i appreciate it, oliver thanks for having me no worries cheers man